I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is a MIWA podcast. The lecture, Deeper Than Indigo, was recorded live Monday, September 19th, 2016, as part of the MIWA School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2018. The lecture is introduced by Tim McLaughlin and features Jenny Balfour-Paul, one of the leading indigo experts, who is perhaps best known for her books, Indigo, Egyptian Mummies to Blue Jeans, and Deeper Than Indigo, Tracing Thomas Mackle, Forgotten Explorer. In this podcast, Jenny recalls the tale of how a few old journal entries from the 19th century led her on an incredible adventure around the world, following in the footsteps of this mysterious man, Thomas Mackle. Join us as we explore the passion and intrigue of all that is blue and go deeper than indigo. Good evening, everyone. As an introducer, your main task is to say who someone is. This daunting form of microbiography is actually impossible. It's a testament to the power of certain people's prose that anyone believes them. I mean, really, how can you encircle the life in all space using only words to give it shape? But the question of who someone is cannot be unasked. In The Curious Among Us, it awakens an appetite, an expectation, a thirst for, for what? What indeed could be a satisfactory answer to this question, the question of who someone is? The question begins to gain momentum like a wooden boat pulled by the current on a wide, expansive river. Because the question of who someone is is really the question of who we are. I think tonight's speaker, Jenny Belfer-Paul, understands this perhaps better than any of us. Jenny is a leading authority on indigo, its history, its use by cultures across the world, its varieties, and the unusual chemistry of its extraction, transport, trade, and use. At Mewa, when someone wants to know all about indigo, we ask simply, have you read Jenny Belfer-Paul's book? The blue dependency that orchestrates her life is stronger than she is, as I think you'll find out tonight. The list of Jenny's accolades and accomplishments is long, so I will only tell you a few. She is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and the Royal Asiatic Society. She is also an honorary research fellow at Exeter University, and in one of the unusual connections which seems to characterize her life, she has worked with the musician Yo-Yo Ma on the Silk Road Connect project. But who is she? Permit me to answer this question by saying, Jenny is the most curious person I have ever met. She has a voracious curiosity. In conversation, she can become almost predatory in her questioning. (laughs) She has a profound inquisitiveness. In the hallowed hallways of the British Library, Jenny one day was given a manuscript worthy of her curiosity. And that story about that manuscript and her life is the story of Deeper Than Indigo. And that story is why she is with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Jenny Balfour-Paul.
nothing worse than speaking after an introduction, <laughs> because then you have to live up to it. Thank you, Tim. It's amazing to be here. Um, I'm thrilled. I have such an admiration for Maywa, the Maywa team, Charlotte above all, Charlotte and Tim and the family. It's just extraordinary. You all probably know the amazing story and the amazing, that's a journey. Do they ever, I said the other day, do they ever give a talk? <laughs> you need to hear about them. <laughs> Come on, take over, yes. Their story is extraordinary, and that's why I'm so thrilled to be back here. I was here in 2004, maybe? Three. <laughs> I had no voice. I'd just come off a cruise ship. No, I'm not a cruise ship person. My son was a jazz pianist on it. <laughs> and I had no voice at all, but Tim, being Tim, managed to put the microphone here. And I whispered the talk, literally, and everybody, you could have heard a pin drop. I thought of doing it again tonight, actually. <laughs> So we are going to get to Thomas Machel in a minute, but we have to get to him through indigo. We are going to go deeper than indigo, but we need to start with indigo. But maybe we start with the quote that start, opens my book, Deeper Than Indigo, which you're going to hear about in about 10 minutes. And the quote is from the great philosopher and artist Tagore, Bengali, let your life lightly dance on the edges of time like dew on the tip of a leaf. So I hope on the screen you can see what I can see, which is it's all about communication. I think the whole thing, really, connection. And I think my life seems to be the same thing. And communication includes notes and diaries and things, which we'll talk about. And on, in this picture, is my, um, on your left, God, I never could do left and right, is my five-year diary from school. And I think if I hadn't been a, a sort of obsessive journal writer, I couldn't have done half the things I'm now doing. And if my subject, Thomas Machel, hadn't written journals, then we wouldn't know about him. His life would have been lost. It's quite a thought, the power of words and art and things, or music too, just the way things last or don't last. On the left is a journal full of um, embarrassing revelations. Who is she anyway? Talk about that. I mean, you read your teenage diaries, or your 20-year-old or 30-year-old or 40, that's not the you you are now, which is rather a curious thing. And what is truth? I mean, is are Thomas Machel's journals true? I took them as truth, but maybe they're not. Maybe he wanted to give us a, a version of himself. So that all comes out in the story. But first, how can somebody spend about 30 or 40 years of their life or something ridiculous, I can't count it, in indigo? Such a small subject, maybe. I could ask myself that, but I hope you'll see why it's happened. It is the most extraordinary dye stuff. Probably most of you know because of your fans of Maywa, but I still think it's incredible to think about until about 1900 how every color in textiles, and we've got to think that textiles is the biggest industry in the world apart from oil, and that starts from the caves onwards. We have to have clothes, we have to have coverings. Textiles everywhere, and people always wanted to color them. And they were colored right by nature until 1900, and now we just take it for granted. But all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, nature was providing color. And the most valuable thing was usually the color, not the fiber. Uh, and then mankind wanted to get beyond pigment, painting pigments. How was he going to get the color of the sky? We are the blue planet. How can you get the color of the blue planet into your cloth? And so you can wear it and make it permanent. There's no dye like it. So there's the three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Reds come from different sources, madder and marinda for roots or from 
famous insects like cochineal or lac insects. Yellows come from all over the place. You can pick so many things and plants, and they'll yield a yellow. There is no green dye in nature for a start, so that's a curious thing. How do you get greens? How do you get blues? Blues, there's only one blue dye, which is extraordinary. It's got the same chemistry, but it's in different species of different plant genera. So you'll get 800 indigoferous species, for instance, and only 10 have indigo in them, or the precursor to indigo. It's invisible. It's white. You can't even see it. And the same with the European woad plant, the same with Japanese indigo. This substance is in some species of different, completely different plants across the world. So this universal precursor to indigo is there. Extracting it, using it is completely unique. Its chemistry is extraordinary. And that is why, out of all the blues, indigo kept its story because of blue genes. And in fact, confusedly, when I revised my indigo book in 2013, gave it a subtitle, From Egyptian Mummies to Blue Genes. I'm quite honest when people come up and say, shall I buy this book, is it different? I do say, no, it's not really, don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure putting a subtitle, but I just felt I had to. And actually, even that's wrong now. I, Egyptian mummies was a nod to the oldest die in the world, which it isn't now. I'll tell you in just a second about that. So it is extraordinary. Even in the rainbow, it's elusive. Indigo is magical, and its chemistry is unique. When you die with it, it's not even blue, it's green. So it started for me, this journey, which I didn't know where it was going. I'd lived in the Middle East with my husband. I'd already been to India, and I was doing rather ghastly batiks and things in a courtyard uh, in, in Devon, and actually teaching it. God, I come across some the other day. I thought, crikey, did I really sell these awful things? I fell upon this lady on the left, um, Susan Bozentz, who was Britain's leading block printer and dyer. Whenever she used indigo, she cleared the courtyard, had friends, and it was always sociable. It was never done on her own. And people did stitching before, all prepared, and there were five or six of us, and it was a sociable thing. And that was the Devon courtyard in which I did my first indigo dyeing with Susan Bozentz. And that started me off on this journey because, parallel to that, my husband went to the Arab world, and of course I went back to the Arab world, who's at Exeter University, to arrange a conference on the two Yemens, as it was then. And I arranged an exhibition rather badly for the um, Yemeni embassy, and I put up, hung up an indigo dress, which I would have brought with me if it had been in UK, shiny like carbon paper with wonderful encrusted embroidery. I phoned Sue and said, you must come and see these indigo dresses. And we stood in front of one of these dresses, and she said, good, it, people still doing it today, because actually, you have to think, this is the early 80s, there were very few people using natural indigo then. There's more now, there's more interest now. She saw something I didn't. We stood in front of the dress, and she said, Jenny, this needs to be recorded before it dies out. I said, I think there's, there were 150 workshops, and now there's only two left. She said, it must be recorded. I said, I can't do that, Sue. Um, I can't get back to Yemen. I haven't got any money. I don't know anything about indigo. She said, who else has access to Yemen? Which nobody had heard of Yemen then. Somebody said, is it a place in Wales when I went there? <laughs> Alas, these places are famous for the wrong reasons now, but really nobody had heard of Yemen. So I couldn't think of anybody who had access to Yemen who also knew about indigo. It was quite a difficult combination. She said, get a grant. I said, oh, nobody will give me a grant. I'm a mum with kids in Devon. Don't be silly. Apply for an Elm grant. So I applied for a grant and said, this is, I'm Mrs. Balfour Paul. I want to go to Yemen to look at indigo. Pretty ridiculous. And I got a cheque the following day. Um, LAUGHTER and Susan had phoned, I didn't know this till she died, she phoned up the chairman of the trustees and said, give Jenny this. And she saw then, in the 80s, that I, she didn't want me to do what she was doing. She wanted me to do something else. <laughs> 
So she, I think, saw that I had the access that she didn't have. She had shelves of cloth from all over the world that inspired her work, a shelf saying Indonesia, Africa, and so on. So she was inspired by the world in her work, but she hadn't got that access to travel, um, the age she was, and so on. And she saw that I did. And maybe she saw that I also had a sort of vaguely academic background, or could have if I bothered to use it. And so I think she pushed me in another direction and saw something I didn't. She also said, if you don't record these things before they die out, there will never be a future revival. And I thought, what a load of nonsense. I can agree with recording it. They'll never be revived. How wrong I was. The revival's all over the place. And how wrong I was about everything, um, really. <laughs> Because I never could have, none of us could have foreseen what was going to happen to the Middle East um, and how crucial, actually, amazingly, how the work that I've done has turned into something else. So off I went to Sana'a. Uh, here we go. The buildings on the left were recently bombed by British bombs supplied to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so they'll never be there again. So um, that's the last thing I say about politics. So the women there, I, I didn't even know, I was so ignorant, were wearing these unique veils, tie-dyed veils, and the incredible headdresses, which I didn't know then, I was so ignorant, linked straight up with Northwest, with uh, Gujarat and Kutch, uh, Northwest India, because that fact they were traded goods, and the fact they go back to the Middle Ages in Cairo. So everything was telling a story, but I didn't know much about it. All I knew is I wanted to see the indigo dyes of Zabid. So down I went to this wonderful town in the Red Sea coastal plain, down this alleyway into a courtyard like those ones on the left. And this is the moment I got hooked on indigo. This is also the moment, probably, that I was going to be led to meeting Thomas Machel years later. He was waiting for me to get through my indigo career. So then the questions came, you know, what's the plants, who are they, question after question. Then I started looking at the history. And in my book is what I thought and was, until last week, the oldest use of indigo dye in the world, 2,500 BC. Guess what happened last week? I got pinging emails, and it was about this astonishing discovery of indigo being used 1,000 and a half years earlier, so now 6,000 years old. Indigo was being dyed not only on, on the most difficult fiber, cotton, not the easier one of wool. And that connection across time, which all the newspapers are making in National Geographic, between the dyes of genes, the cotton and the indigo combination. Very moving, really, to think it was being done 6,000 years before. And the extraordinary thing is the chemistry is so complicated in indigo. And yet, people discovered it independently. So ancient Chinese mummies, Egyptian mummies, Maya blue, which is now using indigo as a paint. And the, it was already being used for blue genes. Unlike the other dyes that need an intermediate chemi chemical and actually fix with the fiber, indigo sits on top in layers, which is why we love it for genes, because you're going down through these many layers as you're wearing it and the seams are rubbing. You're really rubbing down through layers of pigment, actually. It's not really a dye, actually. It's difficult even to encapsulate what indigo is. And it's the only natural dye that cannot change its color. It is always blue. And look at this piece. The reds have gone a bit browny. The yellows have lost their yellowness. Look at the blues zinging out. They may go paler. They do with our genes and things, but they can't lose their blueness. Yet another unique quality. Of course, I'm a little bit biased. Now, some of the things that the um, indigo journey took me on, one was another extraordinary connection across time. We had an indigo exhibition that toured Britain in 2007. Wonderful show, which actually was going to be the opening show for the Textile Museum in Washington, D.C. Can you believe it? They came, up, they came twice, three times, 
to take our show to open it in Washington, but actually they lost the funding. It was a sort of crash came in 2008, so it never happened. But it was quite unique that they thought our show was so special. Indigo Blue to Die For. It was also the commemoration or the marking of the end of the transatlantic slave trade. And the last venue of the show which toured was in Brighton Museum, and we had a, there was a showcase there with slave shackles and things, because Indigo has this bad patch of story in the middle associated with, with forced labor. And I was suddenly, at this point of the show, sent a jar of indigo from the shipwreck of 1640. I knew about this shipwreck. I knew there was indigo, and I knew it would die. Nobody believed a word I said, as they never do. It's funny. This <laughs> jar of indigo arrived from Mexico, and my task was to sample it. Can you imagine? You've got indigo that's been made on a slave plantation, and you are dying with it nearly 400 years later. So this jar of indigo came and I dissembled. Look at the colors, it was just like jeans today. There it is in my garden, hanging up with fresh indigo dyed scarves. Little shipwreck samples. It was such an incredible moment and a privilege to use this dye. Indigo is also, as I say, whether it's synthetic or natural, it has the same magic. So the dye has to be not blue because you've dissolved it. We're not gonna go into the chemistry of it, but when it's in the plant, it's not blue. You extract it, it's blue. But when you dye with it, it mustn't be blue again. So work that one out. <laughs> and then when it comes out of the dye vat and hits the air, the oxygen turns it. It's all to do with oxygen. And then the processes people do are unique for indigo because it's not very good at printing. It's much better for dyeing. So things like batik. But it's a cool dye, so you can do batik with it, which you couldn't with the hot dyes and all sorts of different techniques. And then you can finish it off by rubbing it and making it, varnishing it and putting ox blood in and egg white and all sorts of things to make it shiny and waterproof. Uh, so that's in China. So we're nearly at Thomas Machel. So Indigo's taken me in all these journeys. So every time I thought I was going to finish Indigo, and actually when I finished the book, I started training to teach adult literacy. It lasted about five minutes. Because, not because I didn't want to, but because something else happened, as it always does in my life. I'm hoping that, again, that a door will, you close one door, another one will open on its own. <laughs> it may not. So this is wonderful. I love these bar stools, don't you? That was London in the um, 1990s. They should have kept them because they're really in again now, aren't they? Kitsch. <laughs> and lovely model. And on the right, I'm in New York now, as um, Tim said, I, this is the sort of thing that happens. It was a very low point in my life, actually, in 2008. And I was falling about, not doing much. And I had an email from, um, yes, Yo-Yo Ma and his team uh, saying, would you come to Harvard, are you free, in two, month, two weeks' time to brainstorm the idea of using indigo as a brilliant connecting subject to engage school children in New York who are in what they call underserved schools there. And could you have a phone call from Yo-Yo while he's traveling in Turkey? And I sat in my cold house. I couldn't get out. It was snowing with this phone call, three-way, yo-yo in the interval of a concert in Turkey, and somebody else in New York, and me in my little muddy kitchen, <laughs> having this bizarre conversation. And, it, anyway, and then it was the day of Obama's inauguration, about a week later. I put the tele television on, and I hadn't thought of Yo-Yo Ma for about a million years, and there he was playing the cello. So I found myself in New York, um, and this is with Yo-Yo up in Harlem planning the project. And this is training the teachers in the most difficult place. I found a course in indigo dye, um, Linda LaBelle, wonderful, in New York, in Brooklyn. She set up an indigo vat valiantly up in Harlem in this corridor, and National Geographic were filming it and so on. There's the math teacher discovering the magic of using, thrilled to pieces, because we had to make sure the teachers understood why indigo, because, you know, it isn't a natural to say to teachers in New York, you know, you've got to teach through indigo. 
But we did it, and it was amazing. And there's the children saying it's the best day of their school year, when they were hands-on, they talked to their parents, they discovered the connection with jeans, possibly a connection with blues music. Yo-yo's convinced that indigo, which is not very far-fetched, actually, because of songs of lamentation in the slave plantations. There was a whole connection story going on, and a very American story, a slant to it. And we developed a magazine. It was an incredible project to do, and I kept flying to and fro and going to amazing concerts and meeting them all. So this takes us on to that word I mentioned before, plantations, So and Thomas Machel. The many indigo plants I mentioned, and you can see on the right, Japanese indigo, and above it, the one that Linnaeus named indigo ferra, not because it has more indigo in the leaves, but because it was the, the plantation crop, as I mentioned. Indigo was used, and in, in, the word indigo means a substance from India. Indigo was coming in as the pigment form, looking like a stone, just a lump of this blue pigment in classical times into the Western world, and being used as a paint, while woad was being used as a dye, but woad in a leaf form, the two were not connected, so one was considered a paint and one was a dye. It's a complicated story to do with the chemistry again. And then, eventually, when Vasco da Gama discovered the route to, Amer to India, and then Indian chintzes and Indian cloth came into Europe, then there was a, a great urge to use cottons and the appropriate dye for cotton, which is the stronger more concentrated indigo from India. And anyway, it was called, in, in, indigo comes from a substance from India. It's a classical word, indicum, indican. So in our exhibition, the picture on the right, we had a banner from Hari's genes, plantation genes, they called them, naturally dyed. Well, if you go to some of these countries, and particularly Bengal, sort of the word plantation and colonial indigo still has a connotation. Uh, because indigo was grown in the colonies of the West Indies and southern states of America and Mexico and so on when colonial times got going. So instead of having to buy the indigo in India, they could then grow it themselves. And it was the first plantation crop, say, on Jamaica when the British got there for the sugar. It got very highly taxed and then sugar came in. I mean, it's an incredible story, all that. But then there was the abolition of the slave trade and the, the wars of independence. So where was indigo going to come from in the 19th century to dye everything that was needed to be blue, let alone green, which had to be indigo and yellow? Where was it going to come from? Because blue-collar workers means indigo, navy blue means indigo, royal blue means indigo. All the armies are always fighting each other the whole time, still are. Look at them, the Prussian blue, the French, the I say the navy clothes, the British trousers, the French jackets. That was all dyed with indigo, working men's clothes. This would meant tons and tons and tons coming in. Where was it going to come from? Well, the British, Clive, had conquered Bengal in uh, 1785, and so by 1800, the experiments were starting to be done to get indigo from Bengal. At its height... In the 1840s, 50s, it was the, the greatest crop coming through Calcutta. The highest percentage of any commodity was indigo. It was that important. And in, opium was not far behind. This was the moment that Thomas Machel ended up in indigo. This is Thomas Machel of Crackenthorpe, born in 1824. Born to a very um, conventional and quite well-off, comfortable um, Victorian family. Born with a birth defect, as he calls it, which he never specifies but it marks his life. So he's the one who's not going to travel. He's going to push a quill in an office at home in Beverly and uh, let the others do all the exciting things, like going in the army or being in the church, of course, the eldest one. Nobody minded about him. He was the runt. So on the right is a portrait, of the only known portrait of him. On the left is a selfie. If he'd had email and Instagram and Pinterest and all that stuff... 
he would have used it. And Skype, he'd have loved Skype, because he wants to communicate. Now, how did I find this young man? Because the librarian at Exeter University went to a meeting in 1999 at the British Library, and on display was this image, indigo planters after Tiffin. It was just a whole bunch of European manuscripts. His journals, actually, which you saw at the beginning, are in five volumes bound up, and they're 3,000 pages. This particular one, page was chosen to put in a, a case to entertain the librarian's meeting. This librarian happened to be there from my hometown. He happened to read the label. The label said five volumes of an indigo planter, a midshipman in the, in the Royal Navy in the mid-19th century. He came home, phoned me up, and said, Jenny, there's an indigo manuscript, did you know, in the British Library? I said, no, I didn't. And no, I'm not interested, but thanks for telling me. I've done two books on indigo, because I might say, I didn't say, and I have, will now, that the Yemeni work led to more encouragement by somebody else and ultimately became a PhD on indigo in the Arab world. I went to all the other Arab countries, Oman, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, down to Mauritania, and did a PhD, it was then published, Indigo in the Arab World, and then the British Museum asked me to do a book on indigo worldwide. Being a woman, I said, I can't possibly, it needs multiple authors, and then they persuaded me to do it. So that was at the point I was trying to do something else. I'd done the two books on indigo. I was doing my adult literacy courses. And that was the point that I had this phone call. So I carried plowing on trying to not do indigo for a few months and then went up to London. I'll just look at these diaries. It was the end of 1999. There are 3,000 pages. I just had all five volumes in front of me. I opened one at random and it said, who would have thought indigo would have given me an amazing chance to travel and meet people? <laughs> And it was the first thing I read out of 3,000 pages. So I sort of slammed it shut and didn't really want to look. I opened another one up, and it said, I wonder if somebody will come across these journals in a dusty library in the 20th century. <laughs> and it was November 1999. And I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> so I shut that one up, had a little more look, thought these look quite fun. I like the pictures and things. Don't want to know. I feel a bit sick, actually. And I um, took them all back and put them on the desk and thought, I don't, I'm not going to look at those. But I was giving a lecture two months later in the, in the Royal Geographical Society, the most terrifying place in the world to lecture, I reckon, because it's where people like Shackleton, it's the lecture hall in the Royal Geographical Society. <laughs> the people who've been there before you and after you are sort of Sir Ranulph fiends and people like that. And I was giving the opening lecture, and it was called Travels in Pursuit of Indigo. And I had in my mind Thomas's hand-painted map of indigo plantations in Bengal. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to end the lecture with a hand-painted map? So I quickly phoned the library and um, got, a got that image and ended my talk with this. I was going to India the next month. I thought, well, how would I just go? It would be quite fun to see any, any remains of these indigo plantations he worked on. So I wasn't really serious about it. And by the way, it wasn't. I'm very slow. When I, that's why it takes so long to write a book. It takes a long time for things to sink into my slow brain. And this, actually, image, if you look, is quite remarkable. He keeps saying he's a rubbish painter, and he's not that good. Um, he and I are about equally bad, which is great, because we match very well. This painting, he's only in his 20s, and yet, look at the perspective of the painting. Whose perspective is it painted from? Can you see? The string down the page is a clue. The punker over the top. He's actually imagining what it's like to be the little boy or the man who's the poorest man in the village, paid a penny a year, to pull the fan, to fan these rather ridiculous Europeans who are rather spoiled with their feet on the table and smoking their cheroot. 
So he's imagining in his 20s already what it feels like to be a poor Indian sitting there doing this with a sense of quirkiness and empathy. Now, I wouldn't have bothered with these journals. They've been an ordinary planter's journals, I can tell you. They are extraordinary. His writing is extraordinary. His actual writing style has things that hadn't been invented yet, like magic realism, which is really empathy anyway. Just we give it a posh name in universities. Actually, nobody really knows what it means, if you actually look it up. Because my agent said, Jenny, you do some magic realism in your book. And I said, oh, in your manuscript. When he read, I said, oh, do I? <laughs> and then I looked up what the hell I'd done. And it's really quite fuzzy at the edges. And I realized that Thomas Machel had done it 150 years before, and so had many other people. But that shows how quirky he is. Now, very quickly, he came from a comfortable background. He's a Machel of Crackenthorpe, a very ancient family. However, he never lived at Crackenthorpe because the house was lost in a gambling debt and then bought back by his younger mother by another gambling debt 100 years later. So Crackenthorpe, the house, actually, in the book, becomes a character that recurs in the book. And that's where it was. And that is Crackenthorpe Manor Hall. And that is the, mate, the family crest. So you can go over all over the north of England on the trail and look for the, the, the Greyhound Trail, I call it. This is where he was baptised in a beautiful town near York in the, in the um, east coast of Yorkshire. The family moved across. And he could have stayed and worked in this lovely town. And in fact, he was brought up. When I did some research there, went very early on, I stayed in the house on the left and opened the curtains, and, well, I opened the curtains, I said in a and b and looked across the road and saw that house, not knowing then that that was where he'd spent the first eight years of his life. And later I found the image of it above, when, as it was. And throughout the whole journey, things came. It was a very unfolding story, this book, and written in a rather peculiar way, because things kept happening as I was writing it. It's got quite a lot of last chapters, with rather brilliant endings, because I kept thinking it was the end of the book. So I spent ages writing a last wonderful paragraph, and then it wasn't the end of the book. Um, and on the right is the rectory where he was brought up, and as it was, one of his paintings. And that's the church. This is Lodestone. His father is the vicar of this church nearly all the time he's away. And the journals are written to father, actually. He calls them his talking papers, and he gets out his cheroot at the end of a day, and he pulls out his papers and gets out his quill, and then he says, basically, Dad, I wish you were here. <laughs> Can you hear the jackal? And, you know, it's really hot today. We've done a good day's planting, and there's a snake on the floor, and I'm feeling very lonely. I mean, and I'm reading this, and he's commenting on the news, and what about the Crimea War? It's a complete sort of it's a Joycean stream of consciousness, really. Very entertaining as well. Therefore, how true is it? Because he does want to entertain his father. And what's he holding back? That was one of the things that interested me, the fact they weren't a private journal, actually. They're written to father, to you. So when you read them, it seems like you, and it's you in this church. And his precious time, because he's one of 12, is when he walks. He's the only one who seems to bother to walk between the two churches. Quite far, I've done the walk every Sunday. And he, that was obviously the time it was just him and his father and nobody else. And inside the church is a memorial today to his mother. And I uncovered his grave when I first went back. And later on in the tale, I discovered the descendants in the States and brought them over. So, age 16, age 12, actually, he runs away from home with his younger brother, who's eight. Because his younger brother, Lance, who's a... Who's, oh, I feel really bad, actually, because people read the book and say, God, I don't like that younger brother. <laughs> I've now painted a bad image of Lance because he was in his shadow all the time. Lance did everything right. He was the younger brother. He was taller, more handsome. He was a brilliant fighter. He was in the army. He was the second best polo player in India. He married well. He got medals for all, all sorts of ghastly things he did. Head of ordnance in Peshawar. And then he was in the Indian so-called mutiny. Got different names for it now. In the Bengal horse artillery. 
who did unspeakable things to um, Indians after the mutiny. But in the eyes of the empire, he did everything right. And um, so Thomas wants to run away by himself. And an eight-year-old Lance said, if you don't take me with you, I'll tell Dad. So the pair of them have to go off. Thomas limping away, I think, and the eight-year-old brother. They, go, they run away for three weeks, right across England. And then Thomas can't jump on a boat at 12, thank God, because the diaries wouldn't have been there if he had. Uh, they get picked up by a friend of their father's eventually. But his father says, I will buy you a commission, um, and you can, you can travel. You're not suitable, but you can be a, go in the Merchant Navy to Calcutta and back. So off he goes. This is the map I have at the beginning of the book, actually, and he marks all his journeys on it. So off he goes to Calcutta. It takes six weeks, and this is his ship, the Worcester. And this is the kind of classic sketches in the journal. He loves the opening pages. Funny enough, when I was at university, I did... Uh, uh, manuscript illumination, because I really, I was at university, I wanted to be at art college, so I sort of lived in the art college in the evenings, did pottery and silversmithing and manuscript illumination. Um, that's the Worcester, which became his home for three years, because, and just before we get to him again, I went overland, of course, years before I found the journals, I wanted to go to India also when I was a teenager, so on my 18th birthday, which is old by his standards, I got into this Land Rover and went overland to Delhi, passing Bamiyan and places. Who was to know the Taliban were going to blow it up? This most beautiful, biggest Buddhist statue in the world. Standing on the head of the Buddha with paintings around it, that's the view in um, 1970. What a privilege that was. And these are my companions. And you don't really need the date to see that we're hippies. But being slightly bloody-minded, as always, I was not going to go to Kathmandu and smoke pot with other fellow Brits, because that seemed incredibly boring. So I went south. So therefore, I never got to Kashmir and so on, which I really wanted to do, because other people were going, <laughs> I want to be different, stupid. Except I went bang into Thomas territory, because by going south, although most of the time I was sleeping and sort of rough, I had one posh address, and that was friends of friends of my parents, who were the last British people packing up to leave. They said, you can come if you like, the house is full of trunks. We're packing up to leave after uh, we're the last British people growing coffee in India turned out to be five miles from where Thomas Machel was opening up coffee plantations 150 years before, but I, I wouldn't know that for 30 years. So off I went, but meanwhile off he went. The opium wars were about to start when he was in Calcutta. His ship became a troop ship to his horror. He just wanted to get home. But so he went down to the docks of Calcutta and walked up and down trying to get a job home, or limped up and down probably. 16 years old, no experience, nobody would employ him. I did the same thing in Bombay when I was 18. I limped, because that was a different reason. I had an infected foot. Up and down Mumbai docks, Bombay as it was then, trying to work my passage home. Nobody would employ me. Can't think why. Sort of long-haired hippie. I would have scrubbed the decks, but anyway, nobody would have me. So I had to get a passenger ship home in his wake, because then, of course, later I discovered the journals, and he was always going that way. So he was stuck on the ship. So he finds himself witness. Like, this is the thing. And actually, there's a great uh, biographer I really admire called Michael Holroyd. I met him years ago, and he said the future biography is actually unimportant people in important... Because everybody's done the important people, haven't they? You know, Wellington and so on. Unimportant people in important times historically. And Thomas is one of those. The point is, he witnessed so many things. He witnessed the Opium Wars right from the beginning because his ship was a troop ship. He was scrubbing decks. He went up a lair because they got Lascars, the local um, Indian sailors. And so, therefore, he was now rowing troops ashore. And he saw Hong Kong as a fishing village. He witnessed the entire Opium Wars. He saw the signing of the Treaty Nanking at the end. He came back to Hong Kong two and a half years later, having seen the whole war. 
And Hong Kong was already full of people and full of all nationalities of the world. It describes it so beautifully. All the go-downs, the warehouses being built already, just in two and a half years. So it's incredible to think of Hong Kong starting like that. The here is in Amoy, ships amassing for war. And if you look across at that view and the temple on the hill, I did one of these dotty journeys in his footsteps. So when I found the journals, just tracking back a bit, I did this, um, I went around these plantations in Bengal, came back and looked at them properly, because I was hooked by then, and then discovered all the parallels between our lives. So instead of doing his footsteps, like you often do when you find these documents, I'd actually been in his footsteps most of my life, not just the Indigo career, many other things. So when I went back again in his footsteps, half the time I was in my own, and half the time I couldn't decide whether I was closer to myself or him, because I'd changed so much, and places had changed so much. Sometimes the old me was nearer to him. But I hadn't been, I'd been to China, but I'd been to Hong Kong before I found the journals. So I hadn't been to Amoy, I was determined to go. <laughs> so this is the only time he doesn't sketch in situ, because he had to have memorandum and then go home and do them properly. He did lots of sketches. How he survived this journey, I don't know. As I say, witnessed the whole war. And in fact, in the diary, this episode could practically be a book because the illustrations are like this all over the place. So that was an amazing episode. Um, his mother died when he was just, just after he left. So he came home and did his mourning rather late. The house was rather gloomy, and he got a spirit of adventure. What was he going to do now? He was going to learn to sail properly. So he sailed before the mast on a collier, taking coal from Newcastle to the most remote archipelago on Earth which is in the middle of the Pacific, and it's always in boxes on maps because it doesn't, there's nothing to peg it to because there's no land. <laughs> if you look at the map, in the bottom left is Tahiti, and then the one in the middle is the, is the Marquesas Islands, and then down the bottom is um, Easter Island. I didn't think it was a very important voyage of his because it was an episode in his life, and I wasn't going to bother to go into his footsteps there. But I was going to Australia and India, and the travel agent said, actually, if you get a round-the-world ticket, you could stop at somewhere like Tahiti if you wanted. I thought, aha, Tahiti, that's only three days sailing for the Marquesas. So um, with my husband, we went to Tahiti and got on a cargo ship and went to the Marquesas Islands. And actually, when I got there, I really realized and appreciated the importance of this voyage. He's 19. He's seen such horrors. Unbelievable what he's seen. As he says, um, war transforms men into devils. I mean, some things, even the, di the diaries are very vivid, and he's saying, let's draw there. I can't even describe this. But he describes enough already. The slaughter he sees, unbelievable slaughter. That was a terrible, terrible war. And when I was lecturing in uh, Gaul and Calcutta earlier this year, both times Amitav Ghosh was there, my great hero, who wrote Sea of Poppies. And in both lectures I went to, he said the same thing about the Opium Wars, that they are as important to Asian history as is the French Revolution to European history and underwritten in a way, and Thomas's incredible record of them. So he'd seen the most appalling things, let alone in the ports of the, um, the ports he'd been in. Um, he describes all the brothels and so on, and he's a sort of gentle vicar's son, and uh, I think he was very abused on the boat because he talks about being bullied, and I think that's a euphemism. So he gets the Marquesas, and they're taking coal because you can't take... Steam doesn't cross the ocean yet, so you take the coal to the steamships, which the French had taken out by sail. This is dotty, isn't it, really? And they built, built little steamships, which needed the coal. So it takes six months to take the coal out there <laughs> to fuel the steamships so they can conquer. They've just conquered the Marquesas from Tahiti. And um, so it goes around Cape, Cape Horn. Incredible. Somebody wrote to me the other day, I said, I'm just reading where Thomas is frozen to the rigging. Isn't he a marvelous writer? <laughs> So I hope now she's read a bit more and he's got there and can read about the passionate love affair he had there. So he sailed into this bay 
Being Thomas, he managed to fall in love with a cannibal chief's daughter. So if you're going to not be attractive to women on the whole because of your various um, problems, you might as well go the whole hog. Now, the, the cannibal chief, his, his two sons had been shot by the French, and yet Thomas made a relationship with the cannibal chief and sat up with him, learned his language. He does say what is the etiquette when you greet a cannibal chief. But it's quite a comic bit in the book. He said he got raged and shouted, and I learned to be. He's only 19. He said, I do what you should always do. Never show your emotion. I sat there calmly while he shouted on. Uh, and then he calmed down, and then we shared a pipe and so on. And by the time he'd left, he wanted to stay and jump ship. They were the nice cannibals. If you read Herman Melville's Taipei, that is the top of the valley. One side is Taipei, the other is Hapa. The Taipei were the more fierce cannibals, and the Hapa were the nicer ones. And Melville had been sailed in just four years before, or two years, and so a lot of the, there's a lot of overlap there. And he was writing Taipei when Thomas was there writing his journals. Interesting overlap, literally speaking. So it was an incredible, important time for him, actually. And then they sail back, and they have to fill up the ship. They, they, it takes four months to unload the coal. And then they had to fill up the ship with ballast, which was stones. And then they came back via um, South America, ditched the stones, and picked up guano, which was like gold. Guano, the guano rush, was the great fertilizer. Mr. Gibbs made his dibs from foreign birds' turds is the expression. Uh, and the Gibbs, great Gibbs Bank in Britain was basically built on birds' turds, birds' shit, which filled up these chasms and was a great fertilizer all over Europe. And it literally was um, a rush for this <laughs> um, smelly gold. And there were houses built on it. But before, so that was that journey. Now, because he was so busy having his love affair, he did no sketches. Well, I had time because we were on the ship. Um, they're so beautiful, the Marquesans. Uh, they're very volcanic islands. They have no lovely beaches. They're covered in these terrible biting flies, which is a great tourist repellent. They're much worse than mosquitoes. They're called no-nos. And that's our cargo smelly copra on the top left. And that, that man on the pier is the one I particularly fancied. <laughs> but he came from the Marquesas. And uh, they're all tattooed from top to bottom. The word tattoo comes from the Marquesas. They're the best tattoos of any Polynesians. The only people have stone statues, as you see at the bottom, tikis with these great eyes. And apart from Easter Island, they're the only Polynesians to have stone statues. Amazing place, extraordinary remote place. And you have to go by cargo ship. We better move on. I talk about the Marquesas for ages. And that's supposed to be the most beautiful bay in the world. Not a very beautiful photograph, but it is stunning. You can only go, it's only 600 inhabitants. And I walked across that island all day. Most purest day of my life. Pure air, no sound, nothing. And I was alone. Incredible. So he comes back home again. Now what's he going to do? Back to India. What's he going to do? Not sure. He wants to be a writer. And in fact, he says later in his life, I'm thinking of writing a novel in the form of an autobiography. So when he's had all his adventures, he wants to write this tale. Well, he didn't manage to do that in his life, so I picked up the baton and wrote the book for him, sort of. The book he wanted to write, I think. There's a mystery throughout my book, because actually in the, in the library when I re read the journals, I say 3,000 pages, five volumes. Halfway through them, he says... When I die, I will leave behind seven volumes of journal, seven volumes. And I worked it out, and um, he did indeed. Well, I thought he died in the last entry originally in 1856, which was annoying because it's just before the Indian Mutiny, and I wanted him to live through the Indian Mutiny um, because it was more interesting then. And I thought he died in 1856. But I worked out that if he then I discovered he died six years later. Now each volume covers three years. So he did live seven years worth, so he was right. But he said it in volume three. Uh, and he was exactly right, and he did live. So in the end, it became a great... At first, it was annoying that where were these volumes, but by the end, it became a real challenge to piece together the last six years 
naturally, as a writer called A.M. Wilson calls, he called my book a detective story. That was a, I never thought it was, but you know, you don't see it yourself. But it is a, a theme of the book, actually, is how am I going to find out what happened to him? So he goes off to India, he wants to be a writer, but that's no good, as we all know, for making money. <laughs> he lands at Babugat, which is what it's like today, which is now rather polluted and smelly, as you see. Probably always was smelly. Um, and on the right, uh, that's what his journals are like. And that one, in fact, is a slightly later one, beautiful um, frontispiece, and he's already practicing his Arabic. And he's not like anyone else when he's there. Oh, there's the Victoria Memorial, built after he was there. A lovely story about that. I don't think I can tell you unless we get to the end. And he ends up with a job in Indigo because he's offered one, assistant plantation manager. He doesn't really want to be an Indigo, but he's got the only decent boss who later, when all, everything went wrong in Indigo, was known as the white sheep among black in the great Indigo inquiry. Happened later. And he's a philanthropist, actually, his boss. He, he trains a doctor in, in Calcutta. He has schools and a hospital on the estate. And Thomas emulates to be like him if he only had any money. And does indeed, at the, end, at the end of his stint there, build his own school based on the Lancastrian system, which is actually the one that the New York, New York system is based on. Uh, then he had cholera and left indigo. So and that's another story. But the, So he had a good boss, so he stayed. But he said the job is pretty awful. Most of the planters are ghastly, which they were. I was married to a Scotsman. I'm half Scots myself. He does say the Scots were the worst. And he's got it in for Mackenzie's and people who are particularly awful. And so if you look at this map, the main river is the Hooghly and the, where Calcutta is. And then to the right is what is now the border of Bangladesh and India after 1973. Well, it was East Pakistan and then became Bangladesh. And we want, of course, his plantations are all marked either side. This is the map I showed in the Royal Geographical Society. This is the first journey I did in his footsteps, although we've been to the Marquesas already. So these are the riverboats he went up and down. And so to get a visa, we could only get it if we promised not to go near the border. So we said we wouldn't go near the border. Of course we did. And of course we had all our luggage stolen and got dumped in a wood in the dark. Serves us right. Not when we were with Bangladeshis and Indians, only when we were in Bengalis, only when we were alone, because we looked so naive, of course, which we were. So this house on the left, incredible journeys on both sides with wonderful friends. On the right was Ruby D, um, Ruby Rajnavi, who actually was a pioneer in the 80s, long before anybody else. I was writing to this woman, because it was all letters then, of course. It took about six weeks, this spindly writing. I've got these letters I treasure from her. I adore this woman. She started reviving Indigo in Bangladesh in the 80s, which was incredible, because so many people are doing it now, but she just and all natural dyes, sort of a lone voice then. And then she was the one who came with us looking for these Neil Cooties, as they're called, the indigo houses. Top left, for instance, is the one where the painting was that led me to the Thomas. So imagine finding the ruin. The whole village mobbed us because they hadn't seen anybody white there before. We walked up the steps into that house, and there I was in the room where that painting had been painted. It was quite a moment, really. So we did all these incredible searches, and the bottom right is where, how the bosses lived, <laughs> sort of rep, um, replicas of British houses with parks and roses and God knows what. Amazing life, really, they led. Um, and this is how indigo was made. So this is a, a slightly later factory. This is why the British were all out there growing indigo. Very speculative, a bit like the bank crash. Money was lent in, lent in advance, and all the banks crashed in Calcutta um, one year when Thomas wasn't there, actually, because of unsustainable lending. So there's the factory, and there's all the, the plants are brought into these steeping tanks. You take the plants out, and then at the bottom, you can see um, men stood in the tanks and whisked it up. And it was forced labor. They couldn't grow rice, caused starvation sometimes. It was very unpopular. 
and then it was boiled up and then indigos came into Europe. And th then it records how indigos made. That's finding old plantations in the jungles today. And here's some more showing people Thomas's sketches. Sometimes we found them, sometimes we didn't. Sometimes we found old graves. It was an extraordinary voyage to go 150 years later, see what we could find, the all-important waterways. And then all his sketches of the villages. So up at the top is only black and white there. It wasn't always romantic, though of course it's things have changed hugely. He was curious about everything. So this is the kind of diary page. The punker waller, the man bringing the water, the musical instruments. And on the left, uh, he, he never ever goes pig sticking or anything. And then this is um, wonderful descriptions of wildlife. This is the Sundarbans, where the home of the Bengal tiger, um, where I went looking two years ago and found tiger pug marks, which are drawn in my book. Didn't see the tiger, that didn't matter. The tiger had been there because there were his footsteps. Very exciting. So one of his voyages, I'm going to dwell on this about five minutes and then we'll skip through the other bit, which I think is remarkable. He decided not, this is typical Thomas again, he decided not to go home with British sailors, but he would go his own way. He would travel as an Arab merchant. He goes down to the dock. Luckily for him, although he's puny and all the rest of it, he, A, he's, good at, he's had time to learn languages. He learns Bengali and Hindi and um, Arabic, enough to be taken as an Arab in all these countries. That's how good it was. And he's got dark hair. And although he's puny normally, he's got a fantastic beard, which the Arabs admire, very long and dark. And he dresses a la mogul and looks great, he says, which is why he paints that self-portrait. There he is again, you see. He's really proud of that. And in fact, his father endorses it later, so it's a very good portrait. <laughs> very well done. Look at the black beard, and there's the captain. And he starts recording this journey. He's got the Bible in Arabic, sent by his uncle in York. He sits on the boat with, these, with the fellow Muslims, very strict, some of them. And they're saying, actually, you're quite nice, and you don't drink alcohol. You know, I thought you were all infidel and ghastly. Um, then they start comparing their religions. They discover they're much closer than they think. Uh, and then they say, why are you doing this voyage? You know, why are you interested in our religion? And he said, if we don't study each other's religions, there'll be trouble in the future, and it will come from the Wahhabis. I did the same voyage in reverse, but I didn't really plan to. Uh, in 2010, I was invited to India, and I wanted to see if I could go by cargo ship. It was almost impossible. I found the last one still taking passengers, and six months later, that stopped. And this was the, it was supposed to be French run and French food and six other passengers and wonderful, and stopping at all these romantic ports. Actually, um, when I got on, I was the only passenger. And you discovered that the day before. My son got all kind of protective and said, Mom, you can't go. Um, they're very rough, the Merchant Navy, you know. And it's not safe. I know I've worked on cruise ships, you know. <laughs> and, and my daughter said, never put any, don't wear any makeup, don't wash your hair, you know. Wear a beanie. It was really funny. My children were so protective. It was very sweet. I ignored them, basically. No, well, anyway, no, I didn't, really, because I was, oh, God, you're muffled up on the deck. It's nothing, it isn't romantic. It doesn't matter what you wear. Nobody even notices you. They're so busy. And then somebody came on after a week. That was the view of Southampton, and I spent five weeks not getting off the ship, but I knew all about Siemens hostels, and that's the crew, all East European. We didn't have French food or anything like that. But it was, and that's my crew pass. And I never got off except once in the rain in Malta because they're run by Dubai port. They're miles from the ordinary ports. They're all run the same way, and they're vast and horrendous. That's Thomas's ship with um, dates and carpets on, on, on board. That's my ship at the bottom, doing the same voyage in reverse. And on the right is a classic sketch I did, because I was really grumpy. I couldn't get off, as usual, at Port Said to meet my stepson, actually. We had a rendezvous on the dock, but I was stuck on the blasted ship because I couldn't get a shore pass. So I just, actually, I, words of my husband came into my mind. 
Indeed, no, one can and indeed one must learn to turn disadvantages into advantages. So I thought, stop grumbling. You're always saying you haven't got time to sketch, so damn well do a sketch. So I stood on the bridge, and that's all I could see, containers and, and cranes, but also down the Suez Canal about to go down. Needless to say, most of it was in the dark, having waited sort of two weeks to get, see it. So this is Thomas's sketch on the right of Muscat Harbour, and on the left, mine of um, Suez. When we got into the lake, two-thirds of the way down, that's where the convoys changed. Actually, it was amazingly fascinating. It was a very exciting voyage in its way. And it's the only way to see the Merchant Navy because the security is so tight. It took me two days to get a visa for Djibouti, and then we didn't go there. They changed the schedule all the time. And that's the view from my cabin in Jebel Ali, the biggest man-made port in the world, which is Dubai's port. And it's something like 70 miles across, tax-free. They refine all the sugar and the oil within the port. I mean, the whole thing was an eye-opener. I had took Thomas's maps with me. That's the view going down the Suez Canal on the right, eight minutes apart, in convoys, and then... Um, hierarchies of ships, you know. The, we were above the refrigerated ships, the banana boats, but above below the Navy. There's a whole strict... It was fascinating, actually. Another sketch of containers, because that's all I ever saw. And that's coming into the pirates, and it was the worst year for pirates um, that year. And the headlines weren't very encouraging before I left, like the one on the right. They just, they'd just taken a British ship inside the Red Sea for the first time. Just before uh, That was Al-Qaeda in Yemen just starting. And so we had to do pirate watch. Have you seen that film, Captain Phillips? It's just like that. The, you have to hide in the, near the engine, stuff like that. We were not going to get caught because we were high in the water. And we went extremely fast and burnt 140 tonnes of crude oil a day. It is not green shipping. There have been a lot of pirate attacks all marked on that map. And that is a pirate because Thomas was boarded by pirates. And the one on the right is a Wahhabi pirate. He's the ancestor of Al-Qaeda in Yemen. I mean, nothing's changing. And that is Jeddah from the sea. I want to do a sketch um, as it was today, but of course we didn't go to Jeddah, did we, in the end? We bypassed it. And then Thomas arrives in Suez and had a shave. And I love these sketches that he does. So this is um, the, the souks. We lived in Cairo for a bit, and this is his, the spice shop. And then on the right, he's in Alexandria, having had all his luggage stolen. Nobody will take him in. He's so swarthy that he's turned away by the British. It's rather like... Hippies turning up on a you know, consulate doorway, and they're not very, they're too smelly. And I think Thomas was similar, swarthy and dark. So he had to stay with the Maltese hotelier, who was lovely to him, because he had no money. Luckily, he dispatched his journals already, otherwise there wouldn't have been any. It was an incredible voyage, and I say it took six months, and he really got to know his shipmates, and it's just amazingly wonderful descriptions all the way through for six months. Highly illustrated. Just to say that I, I was going to go up the Indus, which he went up, um, the one on the left, up the Indus River. But there was a bomb in Peshawar just before I was going, so I couldn't get there. He was painting tiles and things in, um, in Sindh, and I was painting similar tiles about 30 years before I found the journals. I did get up the Indus in the container ship a little way to Karachi port, Bin Qasim. That's what it's like. Passengers already weren't allowed there, so we were listed as crew at that point trapped in the cabin, watching piers being built. I mean, it's horrendous. And then, six months later, they stopped having, you can't do this voyage now. The diaries ended in southern India when he's working in coffee. So I thought, well, I'll go down to where you wrote the last entry, and then I will find what? What the hell will I find? Documents on a shelf? No idea. But I always have to go to places. So I had this wonderful trip in southern India in his footsteps. I went um, to Cochin with Glencairn again. Wonderful descriptions. He went twice to Cochin, the mosque and the synagogues. 
and going up the streets, and actually then to the coffee plantations. Now, when I was 18, I mentioned I'd already been there. I was actually trying to find some fellow British, this fellow British planter. I couldn't find them, but somebody said there's somebody else who are also planters. And they, I don't know quite how I linked with them, but suddenly I was taken into the home of three ancient men who are younger than I am now. But in my diary, I say how old they were. <laughs> They're about 60, I think. They were all bachelors, and they were called Vanninger, and they were Dutch origin, and they were the most famous taxidermists in the whole of Asia. So that house, you can see the extraordinary tower. When you walk in, it's just all stuffed animals. And behind was this incredible taxidermy. I mean, it was a bizarre thing for an 18-year-old. And I went off around the place in Elephants and went to their coffee plantation, which was the one that was right near Thomas Machel's. So maybe that was why. And then all these spice ports were so wonderful. And Thomas's descriptions of coffee, it's very interesting rediscovering your diaries, because I had Thomas's descriptions of coffee opening up the plantations, amazingly wonderful descriptions, really lamenting cutting down trees, which was extraordinary then, because even today they're very wooded. And it reads like a poem, and he says, we cut today all these trees, including the sandalwood, that shed its perfume on the axe that felled it. That's the way he writes. And I'd already been describing almost the same thing. It was almost like it was for him in the 70s, almost closer than it is today. So that's when time got sort of all skewed, uh, coffee planting and so on. And anyway, something did happen. I did find out about the end of his life, but not quite the way I expected to. Whilst trying to find his grave, that was another mystery. No record of where he was buried. And yet, in London, they have all the records of where the British are buried. And I was pretty sure he was buried in India, but they said, no, he wasn't. So being me, I went to where... He was supposed to have died, anyway, with my daughter, who we met. She came from Australia. We met in Calcutta and did this completely bonkers journey to a town called Nursingpore, which is a sort of, it's the center of India. And it's where um, the word thug comes from, or thuggies. We got the name, I mean, where the set idea of thugs came from, because Sleeman built a court, Colonel Sleeman, in the 1850s, to try and capture the thuggies and declare war on thuggy and thugs, just like Bush's war on terror. So the thugs were supposed to be the bandits that attacked all the British traders. Well, actually, British traders were trading opium. So, I mean, it's not exactly... It's a bit like this, you know, good good versus evil. It's, not, it's a little bit more nuanced than that when you actually start delving. And we had this ridiculous journey where everything went wrong. The road was washed away, and there were sheep everywhere, and car crashes, and... I mean, it was wonderful because it was so colourful. It was like a pantomime. That journey just became a complete unfolding pantomime. It was completely extraordinary. Instead of going straight to the graveyard, we actually... Uh, went to see the court first and got arrested at this point. And one curious fa- fact about Sleemanabad is that in the prison, the thugs who reformed themselves, as opposed to being hung by Sleeman, did weaving for ref- to reform themselves. They were taught weaving. And they wove the biggest carpet, in, certainly in England, in, Qu- in Windsor Castle, the Queen's Castle, is the biggest carpet in Britain, woven by the reformed thugs here in this prison. <laughs> so, and we were in the police station trying to... <laughs> Wondering whether we're going to be sent to jail or not. And I thought we would might, might weave some rugs while we were there. So um, in the end, we didn't. We were taken under police escort to, the, um, to look for Thomas Machel's grave with entire sort of village and policemen and all sorts. Um, it was completely bonkers. But anyway, that was a chapter in the book. It was supposed to be a really poignant chapter, and it turned out to be, you know, looking for his grave, sad and everything. It was like really sort of one of the funniest chapters, oddly enough. So just returning to his roots, but just very quickly. The family died out because of the Somme, and we've just commemorated 
the um, Battle of the Somme with the most amazing things. I don't know about what you've had here, but in UK there's been some extraordinary things. And Thomas's um, nephew, Percy, was killed on day one of the Somme. He was an officer, and he writes his diaries till the morning, and he writes his diary and says, I've been told not to go ahead with the men, but if it goes badly, I'm going to go forward. And it did go badly, as we know. And so he went up and was shot. And then the whole family history changed. Like so many other families, it was the Somme that that terrible war that marked so much. Uh, there's the greyhounds all over the place, on fonts and in pubs, <laughs> the Three Greyhound pub. And uh, again, the family in Yorkshire, where he came from. There is Percy, about to go to war, out of retirement in his 50s. And little Roger, who was eight, who was left alone in the nursery wing at this haunted house, and never married, and so on. Right, so finally, that's just to say things turned up when I wanted them, like boxes in attics, which you never think will happen, but they did. Back to Calcutta, finally, because there's certainly an Indian roots to this. So we just end up in Calcutta. So when I first went to Calcutta, I took this map and followed the st his street map. That was quite fun. And then looked for his houses where he stayed. Now, when he went to Calcutta, every house was closed to him. Nobody would have him to stay except the humble box wallers, as they were, people in trade, married to an Anglo-Indian, because he had Hindus and Muslims staying with him in his house. And as he says, this is infradig. It was not done then. That just showed he's very defiant in the journey. He said, I don't mind. I'll do what I want. But because of that, every door was shut to him in society. And he couldn't dance because of his birth defects. So altogether, he was lonely in a way. So last time I went back, I was thinking about him and about his lovely sketches. So this is a typical page where he's saying, isn't it ridiculous? I have 12 people waiting on me. And here they are bringing me supper, my lonely supper. Look at the lamps on the table. And look at the textiles. He paints them in great detail. And then he paints himself going hunting. So when I went back two years ago, I found a junk shop. And in the junk shop were lamps, just like on his table. And a hat. If I hadn't been traveling, I could take the hacks. I quite like it to have it. Wonderful colonial hacks. I love hats. And I sort of made a link to that time, these kind of crazy hats they used to wear. And finally, underneath all this, I mean, there's a... I don't know what the story... I mean, you can just read it as a story, <laughs> of finding the journals and going in search and trying to find out what happened to him. And then there's some comic bits and so on. But underneath, as a young man, sort of spiritual, I, mean, I don't sort of plug this very much, but what moves me about him is his spiritual seeking in many ways. He's a young man. He's working it out on the page. He's very baffled by all the religious arguments and all the religions contradicting each other. And he says he can't, he can't understand it, really. He says it all comes down to the same thing in the end. He's very new age, actually. He says it all melts down, really, to that one word, um. <laughs> Sounds like totness and doing yoga and stuff where I live. You know, he's very modern that way, but he really is baffled and worried. He has terrible arguments with the Catholic priest on the ship when he comes home after cholera, who tries to convert him. And he says, but we're all believing the same thing. Um, we don't need to argue. And another volume turned up in a New York Salem a few years ago. And the Salem contacted me and not the British Library because they Googled the name and kept me, came to me. And I bought it, I've still got it. And his father put together all his spiritual searchings. And actually he was furious because he went home and saw it and said, this is, dad shouldn't have done this. It's an unfinished jotting and these are what's in it. All his different, there's the lotus and the Gandhi. These happen to be um, Indian gods, but he has um, you know, Judaism, all the religions are there. And I think that his great nephew was very influenced by him, and he went off, his nephew, sorry, he went off to the America, which is why they're in America, because he was a classical painter, and he became a theosophist. And his painting today is on the back of the theosophy. It's their main painting on the back of the theosophy journal. It's another whole story, fascinating. The path, 
by Reginald Machel. So just finally, whenever I gave lectures, I always ended up with the God, with Krishna, because I love him, because he's the capricious and connecting and most connecting of all gods. Not that I know anything about Hindu mythology or religion. I'm very ignorant about all that, really. But I do like Krishna, and he's the indigo god. So he's always, Krishna's always blue, always indigo. When I was in Calcutta, sitting in this huge... I'd been to Gaul, kind of swanky, rather... Um, classy festival in January, February this year. You know, people pay for tickets, and um, it's all quite, it's quite a glam literary festival to go to. It was fun, though, great fun. And then I went on to Calcutta, completely different. Everything was free. It's in a huge tent with a backdrop of the Victoria Memorial. And there I was, and I was about the only white person, all very lively Bengalis and Indians in the audience and everything. Actually, two things happened. I'm going to tell you two little stories. The first one was that somebody else gave a lecture, an Indian, and said, I love coming back to Calcutta. And somebody in the audience said, why? And he said, well, look how incredible it is. We've got this, Victoria Memorial. He kept pointing around the park. They're all British buildings. So I put my hand up and said, I always feel a bit embarrassed, you know, by these buildings. They're so kind of plonk, the British are here, particularly the Victoria Memorial, which is huge, if anybody's seen it. And uh, he just laughed, and he said, it's ours now. <laughs> And I love that, where the Indians are very encompassing of all the different periods. Their sense of time's different. So, yes, it was ghastly, and of course it's ghastly in the memory, but at the same time, they own it now. They've absorbed it all, you know, the moguls, everything's all coming, piling into India, home of civilization, and it's uh, theirs now. And that was great. Now, the person I was doing the interview with was a textile person called Bapa, who used, loves indigo. And he said, Jenny, um, I was talking to my wife last night. Do you realize that if your book was translated into Hindi, well, that'll be the day, but if it was, it would be called Krishna, because actually one of the names for Krishna is, is deeper than indigo, or very deep indigo. So your book would be Krishna. So it was, must have been in the psyche somewhere. So that was my journal. So these journals, you know, five volumes, 3,000 pages, led to this unexpected journey, thanks only to the word indigo. And finally, I got there, I got deeper than indigo. It took a long time. As I say, I'm very slow. And thank you for listening for so long. <laughs> You have been listening to a Maiwa podcast. The lecture, Deeper Than Indigo, was presented on Monday, September 19, 2016, as part of the Maiwa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by Tim McLaughlin and features Jenny Belfer-Paul. The podcast you've just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture. It was first posted in 2018. MIWA podcasts can be found on the MIWA School of Textiles website at schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word, dot com. For more information about MIWA and all that we do, please visit our website at MIWA.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. Thank you.